This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Academic Life, a podcast channel here on New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Christina Gessler, and today we're joined by Dr. Lacey Abrego and Dr. Genevieve Negron-Gonzalez, who are the editors of We Are Not Dreamers, Undocumented Scholars Theorize Undocumented Life in the United States. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks so much. I am so glad that you're both here and that we get to talk about the making of this book. Before we jump into that, I hope you will please both introduce yourselves. Dr. Abrego, can we start with you, please? Sure. My name is Lacey Abrego. I am professor and chair of the Department of Chicana, Chicano and Central American Studies at UCLA. Um, and I'm Genevieve Negron Gonzalez. I am an associate professor in the School of Education at the University of San Francisco. Thank you so much for that. One of the things I like to ask my guests is about their own journey through higher ed. And so I wonder if we could go work backwards a bit. Um, Dr. Negron Gonzalez, could you tell us about when you were back in, let's say, high school looking forward, what led you on your path through higher ed? And what would you like to share about that path with us? Oh, boy, that's a big question. <laughs> um, so uh, starting back in high school, I mean, I did not, I definitely did not anticipate that I would ever be a college professor that did not seemed to be um, anything in the realm of possibility. I didn't, I didn't even imagine that I would get an advanced degree. I thought that I would go to college because it was really important to my parents that we, um, my sister and I were able to uh, achieve a level of education that they had not been able to. Um, so I thought I would go to college and then, you know, work. Um, and so even through my time um, as an undergraduate, I did not anticipate that I would come back to school, get a master's or a PhD. But um, I've always really loved learning. I've always really loved schools and, and teaching and classrooms. Um, for a lot of my uh, undergraduate life, I thought I would be you know, maybe a K through 12 teacher. Um, and um, I, my own sort of disciplinary background is I studied ethnic studies and education as an undergraduate student. I found a lot of meaning in that, in that work. Um, I also was an undergraduate student uh, in the University of California system at the time when affirmative action was being dismantled uh, system and statewide. And so that fight and being engaged in student activism really kind of recalibrated my own educational life and my own trajectory. Um, and I began to see sort of that kind of struggle and that kind of work as central to the kind of work that I wanted to do in the world. 
Um, I ended up, you know, sort of working at a nonprofit organization in Oakland, California, while I was an undergraduate student, um, and then worked there full time when I when I graduated, um, and then ended up coming back to graduate school a couple of years later, because I wanted to have some space to grapple with some of the questions that were coming up on the ground doing the work. Um, I was doing political education work with young people in Oakland, and there were questions that were surfacing in the work to me about how to, you know, um, raise consciousness, how to, um, you know, uh, engage in a kind of popular education pedagogy that would speak to oppressed people in the context in which they were uh, navigating. And, you know, it was a small struggling nonprofit. Uh, it still exists. It's called the School of Unity and Liberation. And I was, you know, in my early 20s and working 80 hours a week, and there was just no time to be able to grapple with the bigger questions that were coming up in the work. And so I decided I was going to go back to uh, to school. I was going to go to graduate school to be able to engage in that. Um, I went back to school and imagined that, you know, at the end of that process, I would just come back to doing the work um, myself, you know, in the community and in, in the nonprofit sector. And instead, you know, through a, ver through a variety of different kind of <laughs> uh, configurations and, and experiences, um, I ended up um, deciding to pursue university level teaching uh, instead. And it's been, it's been uh, a complicated and um, beautiful process to be able to teach college students um, and engage in that kind of pedagogical process uh, around, you know, some of the issues that I feel like are the most pressing on the ground. So that's the, that's the short and long, maybe too long story of um, kind of how I ended up here, but my own kind of development. I, I grew up on the southern border um, of, of South San Diego County. So I um, grew up in this country. I was born in this country, but I grew up in a moment of um, very um, significant and, um, and meaningful struggles on the border. And so I got involved in immigrant rights work when I was a teenager, and that work really... Um, you know, was a was a rooting and a grounding for me in terms of my own political development, my own political consciousness, um, and ended up being something that I came back to uh, in a very explicit and concrete way um, as a uh, as a doctoral student and um, focused my research then as a doctoral student and then um, as a new professor um, and now as a mid career professor um, in the areas of higher education, undocumented students um, and um, the context of Latinx communities and education. Um, thank you for telling us that. And no, it wasn't too long of an answer. How people are inspired to go on their life's work is fascinating. And it's a part of, for me at least, when I hear people give talks, um, it's the part of the biography that's left out. And I think it's the part that it particularly helps students understand paths that they didn't think could cross each other. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Dr. Abrego, would you answer the same question, please? Yeah, I feel like I learned a little more about Genevieve in that process. I appreciate <laughs> that. Um, it is a big question, and you asked me to go back to high school to think about that. So I, <laughs> I feel like my path was set a little bit before that because my middle school teacher's took it upon themselves. I had only gone to public school in an immigrant neighborhood in LA and uh, my middle school teachers, junior high at the time, uh, took it upon themselves to get me into this program that would take kids of color into 
either prep schools or really good public schools around the country. And it's not something I wanted to do, but I ended up at a really elite prep school for high school where everyone just went to college. There was no question about it. Um, So I went to a small liberal arts college and I didn't know what I was doing because I was the first person in my entire extended family in the U.S. to go to college. And I thought I was going to do psychology. I hated the first psychology class I took and then kept coming back to Spanish because I really liked literature and ended up majoring in that. But always having this question about whether um, that was enough, whether just reading and enjoying writing would be a a contribution, I guess, to the world. And it felt kind of selfish to me. Um, But everyone at my college went on to do something after college. They went to med school or law school or into PhDs. And I thought, oh, I guess I have to get a PhD in this, but I wasn't feeling it that much anymore. And I was fortunate enough to get a fellowship so that right after college graduation, I traveled in Latin America for a year and my project was to interview women from marginalized communities in different countries about their history, their their country's history. <clears throat> so I didn't know how to do interviews, but I basically hung out with people, volunteered at organizations and in Southern Mexico, in Panama, in Chile, and in Uruguay. And um, I learned so much and I had read about everything that was going on in each country, but I learned so much from them and thought, okay, what am I going to do? How do I learn to do good interviews. So I came back to the U.S. I worked for two years in college admissions and was feeling like I really missed just being in the classroom. I really missed talking about readings and um, analyzing things. And and so at the time, the internet was not very, not, not what it is now. Uh, I remember thinking, okay, how do I figure out what I go to grad school for? And so I did a search for uh, fields where you do interviews. And what came up was anthropology and sociology. And then I, I tried to understand what are these because I didn't have a background in them. And so I remember that I came upon lists of dissertation titles, not dissertations themselves, just titles. And just based on the titles, I decided that sociology sounded more interesting than anthropology. And so I applied to, I think it was three sociology programs in the area. I didn't want to leave LA. And then I went where I got the most funding. And all along, I thought, I'm going to learn how to do interviews. And then, I don't know, I I also, like Genevieve, thought I was going to be teaching, I was pretty sure, elementary school. Um, But the longer I was there, I, one, came to learn that a PhD is a degree where you learn to do research, right? I didn't really understand that going in. But the more I did research, the more I fell in love with that process. And it was in 
grad school that I decided, well, I'm going to try and, and get a job where research will be the primary thing I do because I got to interview people and learn from them. So that's kind of how I ended up here. Thank you for sharing that. One thing I'm curious about uh, reading the book, um, in the opening pages, you talk about a 2016 conversation that you both had that was the spark for starting this book. But I'm curious about how you knew each other prior to that. So we, I can, I can say a little bit, we met at a conference on the East Coast that was focused on undocumented students. And we were both speakers. I heard Genevieve speak there for the first time. Um, and I think we were, I want to say we were immediately kind of drawn to each other because of the perspectives that we were sharing from our work. We made time to meet up separate from the conference and we clicked immediately. I don't know if that's how you remember it, Genevieve. Yeah, I'm, I mostly remember it that way, but with the additional um, piece that uh, this was—I already knew Lacey and her work, um, and I—I was—I I actually think that that conference, if I'm remembering correctly, I think it was my very first semester as an assistant professor. Um, I, I think I was brand brand new to the academy, and um, I already knew of Lacey and I knew her work, and I was you know found her work really meaningful and really impressive. And there's a way that that you know somebody who like is really smart and writes a lot and publishes a lot. There's a way that they kind of live in your head. And there was a, there was a perception that I had in my head, not ever having interacted with Lacey of like what she must be like. And um, you know, which was mostly like really serious and really focused on work. And um, we sat next to each other at the conference one day and we were like within five minutes, like talking about our kids. We have kids that are similar aged and we were talking about our kids and she was really funny. And we just, yes, absolutely automatically clicked. But also there was this part of me that I was like, oh, wow, this is <laughs> this is what a this is what a professor can be like is like somebody who like writes really meaningful stuff doesn't have to be like super serious and like, you know, only like knows in their book all the time. Like this is she's just a really beautiful, lovely person. And um, it gave me a sense of also like what the Academy could be. There's a lot of, there's a lot of horror stories and, and a lot of sort of, you know, ideas of, of what it means to be a woman of color professor and what, how you have to carry yourself. And I just found Lacey to be somebody who was so warm and so thoughtful and so funny. And of course, also politically, you know, there was, there was also that piece of it, which you mentioned, which is that I was like, everything she's saying, I think and believe. And it's so refreshing to hear this. Um, so yeah, we, we connected uh, personally and, and, um, and from there uh, engaged, you know, both formally and informally in a series of conversation that spanned several years um, about the kind of um, things that we were seeing coming up in the field, the kind of challenges that we were both facing in, in supporting and mentoring students, um, the, our own kind of collective processing about the, the, the discussions in, in the field broadly. And um, yeah, it started a, it started a professional and personal relationship that has been really, really beautiful and really nourishing to me as I make my life in the Academy. And so in 2016, the two of you have a conversation that 
is the the genesis for this book. For listeners in other parts of the world or who perhaps were quite young in 2016, can you set the stage for what was going on at the time that you had this conversation? And can you take us back to the conversation? Sure. So I'll say that I started teaching in 2010, which was a crucial year for immigrant rights and for um, undocumented young people in particular because the DREAM Act did not pass and it came the closest to passing that year. And I was mentoring several undocumented students and lived with them you know, all of the various ups and downs of that year politically. And so from the moment that I saw them going through the anguish of having to explain why they were pushing for something that would benefit them versus pushing for a broader immigration reform, um, the just the sheer anguish, that's the only way I can describe it, really um, drew me to think more about how to think more broadly about them as more than just students. And as I, as the years went on, 2011, 12, these political fights were taking up so much of their emotional bandwidth and, and really, um, having them struggle with the academic end of things because there was so much going on. And I had this idea, they were all still writing such powerful theses and and the conversations in the classroom were so thoughtful. And I, I had this idea from early on, but I was an assistant professor. I was doing so many different things. I had really small kids at the time. And so it was just in the back of my mind. I want to, at one point, produce something that is their space for their voices, for their research. And so it was there, it was there, the the whole political context was challenging through that time. I met Genevieve in 2013. And then as we got to know each other better, I think Genevieve, you invited me to work on a project first. Um, And once we went through that project, which was a a special issue for a journal, Genevieve led that and was so amazing. And I thought, hey, this could be someone, you know, I don't have to do this alone. Um, I don't know, Genevieve, do you want to tell the story of that that day? Yeah. So uh, Lacey, I think, was in town for a conference, if I remember correctly. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. So she was she was. um, So we live, you know, we live in different cities. Lacey is in. Um, is in Los Angeles and I'm up in the Bay Area. And so we would, you know, see each other when we could, when we happened to be in each other's cities or happened to be at conferences together and that kind of thing. And uh, so she was up in Oakland for a conference and we um, we had also just over the, you know, over the previous years been having conversations also about teaching and mentoring and supporting students. Um, and so the, the period that Lacey talked about um, in 2010, I, I was also, you know, um, working and supporting students at that time that, that the the campaign around the DREAM Act that she talked about was the focus of my dissertation research and and thinking about the way that political subjectivities were developed in that moment and, and, and complicated in many of the same ways that Lacey just spoke to. 
And so in that period as well, and in the aftermath of that period, we also had a lot of conversation uh, with each other as teachers, as mentors, as folks who were supporting um, undocumented students, um, you know, thinking and, and writing and, and studying um, in that period. And uh, when we connected in 2016 um, up here in the Bay Area, Lacey said, you know, I've been thinking, we, we, were, we were having another one of those teaching, talking, supporting, mentoring students conversations just casually, you know, as as um, as colleagues and as friends. And Lacey said, you know, I've, I've had this idea for this book. And, you know, it's something I've just kind of kicked around for a couple of years in my head. But I don't know, you know, this is this is the idea that I have. Like, what what, what about an edited collection of the work of undocumented scholars, you know, and um and I mean, and I think that's about as far as she, well, no, I, I guess I, she probably invited me in some way. Otherwise, I hope she invited me. Otherwise, it would have been very presumptuous of me to assume that I was being invited in. And I think she said something along the lines, I hope, maybe I'm maybe I'm rewriting his name. That was very presumptuous. But um, my my recollection is that she said, you know, I don't know, maybe is this something that you would be interested in, in working on with me, you know? And um, I was like, I think that's about as far as the conversation went. And I was like, absolutely, count me in. Like, where? Like, where should we start right now? Like, should I pause <laughs> for? Like, how do we? Let's let's do this. Um, so that's kind of the the genesis of the of the book project. And it took many years to come to full fruition, um, but um, it was a really lovely process. And so it started in 2016. The the introduction says that the conversation to get it, the book started was in 2016. And the um, issue I have is a paperback from 2020. Is 2020 when the book came out? Yes. Or was there a hardback? Okay. Yeah. Um, and one of the things that you let me know in pre-production is it's important for you to have time to talk about writing as a tool for political and intellectual intervention. It strikes me as it was not an accident then that this book started getting off the ground in 2016. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, it was a um, it was an, uh, a really really hard moment, um, and I think that the um, the impetus for the book, you know, really was in a fundamental way that we were seeing um, undocumented students that we were working with, you know, as as mentors, as teachers, as supporters, and we were seeing them produce just this really, really critical, meaningful scholarship. And yet um, there were some pretty profound barriers to getting that work out into the world. And um, as a part of that process, uh, and we, we talk about this in the introduction, um, you know, we began thinking about the writing process um, and what writing was for these students, how writing about one's own experiences. And, you know, this, this of course, is stretches far beyond questions of undocumented identity and, and, and many, many others can relate to this, but writing about issues that are so close to one's experience um, is mentally, emotionally, um, logistically, pragmatically, really, really draining, really, really difficult. And that was absolutely true uh, in this period of sort of um, the, the dawn of the Trump years, um, the context in which we were all sort of navigating, trying to find our footing about how to do meaningful work in the world um, amidst this, this particular moment of political transition and with a lot of clarity about what that was going to mean and, and, and how bad everything was going to get and pretty much immediately did. Um, and I think that 
you know, the other piece of this was that we were really intentional about wanting to, that there, there, there are other things out in the world, you know, some books, but other things as well that are testimonies of undocumented students, testimonios, um, first person, you know, sort of story sharing and, 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 uh, and that stuff is important and it's, and it's, and it's, um, critical and it's valuable. And also we felt really clear that we wanted to do something different, that we wanted to be able to create a space where undocumented scholars could um, grapple with theoretical and empirical questions um, and be seen as thinkers and as scholars, understanding that in that moment of the, the beginning of the Trump presidency and those really terrible, very long four years, um, that we were going to need to fight in every way possible, that we were that that was going to include legislative fights, that it was going to include civil disobedience and political action, um, and that it would also include writing and scholarship. And we saw this work um, and work in general, you know, sort of that, that engages in these in these questions on the ground as a meaningful interjection uh, in that broader political project. Lacey, do you want to add to that? I think Genevieve covered it pretty well. She did. I just sometimes, um, <laughs> it sparks even more ideas and I wanted to make sure you had a chance to um, add on to that if you wanted to. I'm like, oh my God, don't um, get me started talking about Trump. I could talk for three hours. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't want to censor you. I just want to make sure you have time to talk about the book too. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, I don't want to talk about the book more. <laughs> Okay, so if you were to give the elevator pitch for the book, um, what would it be? Ooh, well, I would say that it is a collection of 10 pieces by 10 undocumented or recently formerly undocumented scholars who write about what it means to be, what it feels like to be uh, undocumented in the United States in the early 21st century. Um, We have a range of chapters that cover everything from the spaces of higher education, which was kind of the norm in that scholarship prior to this, but also people theorizing joy and dance and uh, what it means to be transgender and undocumented, what it means to be undocumented parents, um, queer parents, various subjectivities that hadn't been explored in such detail and with with such depth. And you talk in the book about countering the dreamer narrative for people in perhaps other areas who haven't familiarized themselves yet with what the dreamer narrative was or how it was used politically. Can you talk about what it was and why it's important to counter it? You want to take that, Lacey, or you want me to? You can go. Um, So the dreamer narrative is this idea that uh, young undocumented people you know, otherwise known as as dreamers, um, you know, often kind of um, talked about as, you know, undocumented people who are brought here as young children um, by their parents. You know, the the, the dreamer narrative is the idea that those undocumented uh, residents are somehow more deserving of citizenship than um, their other uh, than the other undocumented members of their community, their parents, um, their you know uh, aunts and uncles. Uh, th- th- there's also a um, 
there's also a, a value in terms of sort of, you know, dreamers are young, but that also means that they are educated in this country. Um, and many of them find their way into college. And so there's this idea that sort of youth and the ability to speak unaccented English, you know, a, a college uh, degree is um, uh, makes these undocumented people more valuable, more worthy of citizenship than other members of the undocumented community. And the Dreamer narrative in many ways is what undergirds the Dream Act, right? It is this idea that we um, can sort of fight for this kind of piecemeal component. We can say, well, we're going to put broader based comprehensive immigration reform, you know, on the holding deck for now, but we're going to try and fight for the rights of quote unquote dreamers and documented young people um, who are who are raised and educated in this country. And the countering of the dreamer narrative really came about not in the academy, but on the ground undocumented young people themselves um, who were often sort of, you know, lauded for being quote unquote dreamers um, themselves began to say, you know, we're not actually interested in a kind of politic or a vision for immigration reform that throws our parents under the bus, that um, demonizes them for migrating with us when what they were trying to do was to give us a better life. We actually are fighting for a vision of immigration um, reform and immigrant rights that actually includes a vision for justice for all 11 million undocumented people in this country. And the the resistance to the dreamer narrative was really about a, um, a desire to call out this sort of differential valuing. It was also about a, um, a calling out of sort of political expediency. Of course, the, 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 the background for this is that, well, it's much harder to pass comprehensive immigration reform than it is to pass reform that's going to impact the most sympathetic members of the undocumented community. And the documented young people themselves came forward and said, we're not interested in that bargain. We're not interested in throwing our family members under the bus in the interest of political expediency. We don't want a kind of justice that prioritizes us over and values us over the other members of the undocumented community. And yet it's hard not to internalize that dreamer narrative. The students themselves, one of the chapters is entitled, I felt like an embarrassment to the undocumented community, undocumented students navigating academic probation and unrealistic expectations. Even as they're fighting against it, there's a compounded sense of pressure for those who do navigate their way through higher ed to work, as it says, at an unrealistic expectation and and not have academic problems. And yet most students have academic problems at some point. And these students in particular, yes. So Grecia Mondragon is the author of that chapter and um, someone that I worked with as an undergrad to, to discuss these issues because nobody was talking about them at the time because the nonprofits of the immigrant rights world, um, the legislators pushing for the DREAM Act, they wanted a U.S. audience to understand these, these students as so perfect that how could we deny them U.S. citizenship, right? And they had to enact that. And many of them had, they had been able to, like many children of immigrants, really excel in school, 
Um, but the pressure to excel, to be perfect in school, and at the same time, do these like civil disobedience acts and all kinds of other organizing just to fund their education while dealing with their own and their families and documented status, the consequences of those things, the the economic instability, the political instability, all of that was just too much to handle for so many. And in the context of the pressure to be perfect, to be this dreamer, uh, it, it really meant that they felt silenced and couldn't find the resources that they needed to get out of academic probation in many cases. And they, they felt isolated in their communities because they couldn't discuss that topic at all. So there were so many layers of pressure on them. And one of the things you say in the book is that you want to explore the nuances and really disrupt this neat narrative. Um, I know there's a lot of significance of this project, but um, Genevieve, you have to leave us in, in five minutes. So do you want to take a few minutes to talk about for you the significance of this project? Yeah, you know, I mean, I think for me, there's there's sort of the the the, the significance that I think is is really evident when you just pick up the book and hold it in your hands, right? Which is that this is the only book to feature the empirical and theoretical work of undocumented and recently undocumented scholars that exists, right? So that that in itself is absolutely significant. It's it's um it's really really meaningful, and we've seen sort of the the broader impact of the of the text um as you know as that that the only book that exists exists in that way. Um, you know, as we've talked about the book, you know, in, in, in different colleges and universities across the country and how meaningful that is to people. And so that is absolutely one of the, 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 the significant sort of um, pieces. The other significance, I think, is this political interjection around the dreamer narrative and um, being able to see the ways in which this um, this book has been taken up. I mean, we've we've gotten emails from folks that have said, you know, we bought this book for everybody in our dream center, and we're all doing a group read of it together. You know, um, we've had emails from professors who say, I'm I'm getting this book, and I'm going to assign chapters of it for my classes this semester. You know, um, we're seeing you know these students and their work being cited. Um, in articles that are coming out, you know, um, in the in the subsequent years after it's been published, and really seeing the way in which the really incredible work of these young scholars is um, shaping and shifting conversations in the field, and this this was our greatest hope for this, right? Is that these are the scholars that would be cited, that these are the scholars that we would that we would recognize as the future of the field, who are asking really critical and important questions that are. Um, shaping in many ways the dialogue around the pressing questions in the field. And it's just been really, really beautiful to see folks engage with the, with the book in that way, take it up in that way, um, share it with others, um, and, um, and to see the, the, the work of these scholars being um, magnified for the incredible contributions that it makes. The scholars writing in the book all have ties in some way to California. Um, and so it does have a very, as a Californian, it has a very California uh, presence to it and feel. It's very placed in time there. But you say in the book that um, 
you feel it will reach a larger audience. And one of the reasons that you name, and I'm sure there's many, is the undocumented youth movement. In the two minutes you have left, Genevieve, before you leave us, do you want to talk about um, the undocumented youth movement and how you hope this work might um, empower and speak to them? Yeah, you know, I think that um, I think that the there's a way in which in the academy we often talk about sort of like the academy over here. I'm like gesturing, but you can't see me because this is audio. But the academy over here, and then you know, far away on this other hand is like community work. And I think one of the things that's really beautiful about this project it's one of the things that has always inspired me about Lacey's. Uh, uh, scholarship and work. It's something that I aspire to in my own work. And it's something that I think each of these chapters really speaks to is this idea that like this, this false divide between the academy and the community, like are there divisions? Of course, absolutely. And, 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 and the academy needs to be really intentional and thoughtful about, about the ways in which, um, you know, those dividing lines exist. At the same time, these scholars, these contributors um, to this book um, come from this community work, come from this movement work. They come from it. They are engaged with it, not simply as a set of intellectual and academic questions. They engage with it on a political level. They engage with it because this is a movement that means something to them. I think for Lacey and I as well, as, as supporters of this movement, you know, this is, it's something that we have always seen and hoped for as, as a synergistic kind of relationship. And, it's something we've seen as we've talked about the book. Like I said, you know, we, we've done, I don't know, more than more than probably a dozen or so book talks across the country. We were invited, um, not just Lacey and I, but, but with uh, the contributors as well, uh, across the country to numerous um, campuses to talk about the work. And we just heard over and over and over again from folks who talked about how meaningful it was to see themselves represented in this text, how there were conversations about undocumented identity that they had never seen represented in, you know, academic work before. And it was in there in this book. Um, And also how the ideas and the issues presented in the book are pushing them to think about their own work, their own scholarship, their own activism in new and different ways. And um, yeah, like I said, I just think that that was, that was our greatest hope for this book is that it was something that could amplify um, the work of these incredible scholars, but also that it was something that could be useful to folks on the ground doing the work um, and be a point of reflection and connection and, um, and can help move us all forward because, you know, it's clear that we are, uh, in a moment in which, um, daring visioning around what immigrant rights looks like, what kind of demands we need to put on, um, our, uh, legislators and politicians, um, need to look like. And, and I think that the book for me really represents a step in that direction of a, of a reconfiguration and a daring visioning for the kind of immigrant rights, um, movement and also, um, comprehensive immigration, uh, you know, uh, reform that we need to bring about. Lisa, you said in, um, in pre-production, one of the things you were really wanting to talk about was the role of ethics and research. And it seems like um, that segues really well with, with what uh, Genevieve has just shared with us. Um, things that are brought up in the, in the book are that students and scholars who participated in this book were 
glad to have the chance to talk back to the scholarship that has been produced about their experiences and that they'd had feelings of being the guinea pigs of academia. How did um, the scholars who contributed wrestle with um, models that they had been exposed to that were unethical and creating their own ethical ways forward to do this work? Yeah. First, let me say I absolutely agree with everything Genevieve said about the meaning of the book. And I have my own. I'll, I'll come back to that um, in terms of the ethics of it all. So there's there's different moments of how scholars had reached out to them and included them in work uh, in the very beginning probably around 2000, there was very little research. And as their situation is particularly as like journalists covered it, um, their story in a society that focuses so much on meritocracy, their story was wonderful, right? It's these hardworking students who have done everything right. And then they can't go to college or they can't afford to pay for college. And so it's this, this story that really resonated with people. And many scholars came to the work to contribute in that way. Um, And it it was hard not to, I think, for a while. But the idea was you'd come and you'd find some, include them in the work, and then maybe not be in touch with them ever again. And as time went on and they started to build this very vibrant movement and more scholars wanted to keep doing this where they'd come in and write about them and not engage they started to uh, push back against that and and really demand that people writing about them also care about what was going on politically or contribute in some way. So I think that um, collectively there was certainly a change in how they were going to give permission or decide themselves whether to participate or not in studies because they were so often feeling, like you said, like guinea pigs, right? And they they were done with that, particularly as the political context nationally was shifting so quickly under the, in the Trump era, um, they really had to protect themselves now. And so I I saw different moments of that happen when it came time to work with these authors. We we experienced different things that they did. Um, I, for example, in Grecia's case, right, Genevieve and I kind of we looked at all the chapters, but took the lead on helping to edit different ones. Mondragon was one that I worked with most closely. And she made the decision that every single draft was going to be read by all the participants and they had to feel comfortable. It was a, a challenging thing at times because when she first started working on that chapter, it was a moment of, you know, the, the political kind of messaging was undocumented and unafraid. And all of the interviewees, the study participants wanted their full names used in the study. And then when we started working on this in 2016, and as things got more and more intense in an anti-immigrant kind of way, um, you know, we thought, well, should we go back to them and ask them, are you sure you still want this? This might 
this could potentially um, have consequences for you that we would not want to cause you? Do you want to pull out of the study at this point, right? These sorts of conversations happen that definitely means that the process has to go slower and take longer to do, but we had that commitment. So we waited for everyone to respond, um, to negotiate what they wanted their pseudonyms to be, to give feedback on every draft because she wanted to make sure that she was not misrepresenting anybody or in any way causing them harm. They all felt really good about what she included. And and so she felt really wonderful and, and confident publishing it by the end. I certainly don't think that most scholars take the time to do that. And in too many cases, we'll publish things that have potentially negative consequences for people or for the movement only because it will make them look like innovative scholars who who have you know come upon this new information that wasn't meant to be publicly shared for example so so seeing that kind of commitment to the ethics of this work to the people involved in it and to make sure that it benefits the movement that was really important but I think that the ethics of it all happened on so many levels with this project it happened um, from the moment that we decided these are going to be their chapters, right? We are going to help edit because we have experience with publishing, but this is not our work. We're not putting our name on their chapters. Um, that's not something that always happens in academia. Uh, there's a lot in terms of the conversations we had about where the funds will go from the book, right? We together as a group came up with possible organizations that would receive the royalties and we voted until we got to a consensus so all of the proceeds go to al otro lado which is an organization that works um, across borders to support asylum seekers and um, doing really, really important work particularly you know at the time that we were working most, most heavily on the book project, we we thought about the ethics of doing book talks even. Genevieve and I spent a lot of time thinking about, you know, the, the authors are not getting paid and we wanted them to because they put in a lot of work and they're also, you know, undocumented scholars who need support, like a lot of scholars, right? And so we in all of our talks have made sure to ask for as much as we can for the authors. She and I do not get paid, um, but we, in the beginning, we didn't know how many book talks we were going to have. So, you know, I devised this whole plan to make sure that everyone, even those who hadn't participated in a book talk, or if some just happened to be available for more or whatever, everyone would get a certain set amount based on the first few talks. And then after that, whoever can do the talk gets paid whatever they can get paid. Um, we're, so we're thinking about ethics all the way across. And I, what I realize is that in having done all of that, we also produced something that very much goes against what, what for me is the most difficult thing to 
navigate in the academy, which is the kind of corporatization or the kind of neoliberalization of higher education where everything has to be about individual merits and individual um, kinds of accomplishments. And we have been able to work collectively in community to do this work. We've done it with um the sense of like pushing all selfishness aside at every stage. And it's been really wonderful to see all of them uh, get to know each other, support each other. One of the most rewarding things for me about the project is that once we, Genevieve and I wrote the first draft of the introduction, we sent it to all the authors for their feedback. And that prompted a lot of conversations not necessarily with us, but it it led um, three in particular, Katy Maldonado, Lucia Leon, and Carolina Valdivia. They worked together to then apply for funding and put together a series of workshops by and for undocumented scholars. And they've been having all kinds of conversations and have plans to keep publishing and really thinking through what it means to be an undocumented scholar doing work on undocumented communities. And the fact that they felt seen and they felt inspired to do this work from having participated in this process is is extremely, extremely meaningful as a scholar who had been accompanying this movement for so many years. One of the things you talk about uh, in the book is what you've touched on there to uh, bring these rising scholars' voices and and research to new audiences and have them be scholars who are cited, whose work is known. And there's 10 chapters in this book, each one by a different um, author. Are you are you thinking maybe you need to do another volume? <laughs> you know, if Genevieve were still here, she would say, yes, I've heard her say this already. The next one, you know, I don't know. I really, um, I see the need for more of these types of projects. I don't know that I need to be leading them. I think, you know, so when we first started the project, none of them were professors yet. They were either in graduate school or law school or out of school. Um, and at this point, I believe two of them are assistant professors now, you know, and so I'm seeing they're, they're going to start going into this area if they want to. And, and they're the leaders, right? I hope that they have, have seen how incredible their work is. And they, they've certainly heard it during our book talks, how much their work means to readers who see themselves in the work. And, and so I'm, I'm thrilled to see where they go with it. Uh, I don't, I don't know if I will be spearheading that anymore, but but it's, there's certainly space for more of this kind of work. And I know we're running short on time, so um, I'd like to ask you, what do you hope this episode sparks for listeners? Well, I hope that people will want to take a look at the book, that they will come to it with all of this context about the kind of love that went into it, you know? I'd say... Um, 
there's there's a lot of scholarly work that really pushes back against emotions and but we're very clear that it it was very much a labor of love for us um and i think it comes through in all of the chapters in different ways that that people felt empowered in this process and that these are voices that haven't been, you know, in mainstream academia. And so they have new research questions. They have new ways to theorize that we should be learning from because these are members of our society who have particular visions and experiences that we need to learn from. Thank you so much for being here today, Dr. Abrego and Dr. Negron Gonzalez, and talking to us about what went into the creation of the book, We Are Not Dreamers, Undocumented Scholars Theorize Undocumented Life in the United States. I'm Dr. Christina Gessler, and you've been listening to The Academic Life on New Books Network. We hope you will please join us again.